Welcome to the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast, part of the Rooted Family of Podcasts. In these conversations with expert practitioners and leading thinkers, our hope is to equip and encourage you to faithfully disciple students toward lifelong faith in Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Davis Lacey. You know, it's early June as we're recording this podcast, and all around the country, we're responding to the senseless killing of George Floyd by reflecting on the racial injustices in our world and in our communities. The main dynamic of these conversations has related to the dynamics between blacks and whites, and that is a very important conversation. Another dynamic to that conversation that we're going to explore today relates to what role, if any, that the Asian American community has to make to this conversation. I'm joined today by two dear friends who are passionate about this topic. Uh, On one hand, we've got Clark Phobes, who is a former Rooted Steering Committee member and he is the worship and college pastor at Sunset Church in San Francisco. And Kevin Yee, a current steering committee member with Rooted, is the youth, college, and young adult pastor at Church Every Day in Los Angeles. Gentlemen, welcome to the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast. Hey, Davis. Hey, Davis. Good to be on. Yeah, so so great to be joined by you guys today. And um, I have done enough of these podcasts to know that people don't really tune in to listen to me. They want to hear you speak. Um, Your perspective is... (laughs) Uh, is the one that people want to hear from. And so I would love, just as we start into this conversation about race and and specifically as it relates to the Asian American community, I'd love to hear just a little bit of your perspective on race relations and what that looked like for you, maybe in your childhood and maybe also in your adulthood. So yeah, um, thanks Davis for asking. Uh, I'm Korean American. I grew up in, uh, born and raised in Southern California in Los Angeles. Um, in the suburbs of LA, in the Valley area, um, grew up uh, during the 80s and 90s, um, so that gives you how old I am. But um, with regards to specifically uh, sort of what we experienced in LA, um, the the sort of seminal racial moment for us was the 92 riots. Um, and so I grew up uh, in elementary school with uh, sort of a multi-ethnic group of friends. Um, but once the 92 riots hit and um, our parents all began to talk about uh, race and who we should be hanging out with and who we shouldn't be hanging out with and sort of the, the tensions um, from the adults, they, they affect us as kids. And so um, towards the latter part of elementary school and towards middle school, um, there was there was a lot of racial tension. Um, I, I'm pretty open about saying that I was bullied uh, not by uh, the white kids, but actually by the black and Latino kids. And just racial tensions in, in, in general were really, really bad. You know, uh, as I got older, uh, recognized uh, so much of how much of that stuff isn't good. Um, it became part of the background of who I became. So like in the foreground of my life, racism is wrong, but there were still parts of uh, my heart and there were still parts of the way that I talked um, that were very much still, I would say, blatantly racist. Um, And over the last five years, ever since uh, Ferguson, um, and just having these um, racial justice issues kind of come to the fore um, as an adult, as as a father, um, just God has been really working in my heart the last couple of years. And honestly, the events of the last couple of weeks have really um, brought up that tension in my heart of why I can't seem to get more involved in this particular issue. And, and part of it has to do with the way that I grew up and the things that I've experienced. And so um, 
I want to say that like the, the main thing for me has been understanding more of what God is doing in my own personal life and in my own heart and recognizing that there's so much work that needs to be done uh, on the on the inside before I can really begin to become an advocate for racial justice um, as a whole. And so God's been doing that work. It's been really tough. It's been really difficult. And not because um, I don't want to let go of this stuff, but because what I'm seeing inside of me is so ugly. Um, and the more that I've been publicly talking about this, the more I'm recognizing that this is a, a common thing that's that I'm seeing in the Asian American community. Um, where we we are dealing with stuff that's that's uh, difficult. It's uh, it's not something that we want to let go of easily because we we are hurting, right? Uh, a lot of us, especially if my friends have grown up in LA, um, we had a lot of situations and a lot of um, traumas from uh, the kinds of um, racial remarks that we've heard against us again from the other minority communities in LA. And so this is something that I think we're all working through. Um, and I really believe that God's doing something really beautiful in the Asian American community right now. Man, praise God. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you for sharing a little bit of, the, of your story, uh, Kevin. And just for me to know a little bit, you talked a little bit about how you processed um, these interactions as a young man, and then maybe now as an adult and a married man, as a father. Um, what was your reaction to being bullied on account of your ethnicity? Uh, what was your reaction like when you were maybe in grade school? And how has that changed, if at all, um, as as someone who's now an adult? Um, I, I want to say the main emotion that I remember is shame. Shame for being an Asian. Shame for being told that I shouldn't cause trouble, you know, in the schoolyard. I shouldn't tell my teachers um, because you don't want to get in more trouble. You, uh, you know, you don't want your grades to be in jeopardy at all whatsoever by getting into a fight or doing anything like that because that's the, the most important thing, you know. Um, and so I would say that that shame carried over into, uh, my adulthood for sure. Like there were parts of me, uh, that didn't want to be, uh, Asian. Um, there were parts of me that wanted to be, uh, more outspoken. There were parts of me that wished that that, that was a cultural value and that that was something that was kind of built into my DNA. And I wish I stood up for myself more and all, all sorts of stuff. And, uh, I'm realizing now though, that there's, um, a, a pro and a con to every single culture. Um, and what I uh, wanted to forsake when I was a child, um, now as an adult, I, I am coming to embrace it and I am coming to see um, just how complex this whole thing is in terms of like who I am. And especially because I'm not just an Asian living in Asia, right? I'm not Korean living in Korea. I'm a Korean American. I live here in the United States. And so um, there's a lot with regards to my identity that I'm only beginning to really deal with, I feel like. Um, but uh, having um, really good friends to kind of process all of this stuff with um, has been a joy because brothers like like Clark have really been helpful in sort of helping me understand that uh, being an Asian is not something to be ashamed of, um, but that I need to work on understanding what that means. Clark, I'd love to hear uh, some of the wisdom that you shared with Kevin. And also, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, what your story was like, maybe as, as a young man and, and moving into adulthood. What, what parts were the same as Kevin's experience? What parts were unique from that? Um, help, yeah. us, help us get to know some of your background a little bit more. Yeah, I don't know what wisdom Kevin's talking about, but um, maybe we'll get to that later. Um, so my, my story is, is interestingly in a lot of ways similar to Kevin's, but also quite the opposite. Um, 
for people who do know me, I um, and if you see my name, Clark Phobes, you may wonder like, why the heck am I on a podcast about Asian Americans? Um, but I'm half Korean and half white, but I look totally white. Like most people, when they meet me, they think I'm white. And until I tell them I'm Asian uh, and identify more with Asian communities, they're, they're kind of fascinated by that. And so I, uh, you know, similar to Kevin, I being biracial, bicultural, um, I, I feel like I've only now in like, you know, maybe the last 10 years of my adulthood been really exploring what that means and, and being proud of it instead of running away from it. Uh, very similar to what Kevin said. And I think a lot of that has to do with how I grew up. Uh, so I grew up in San Francisco um, where there's a lot of diversity. Uh, and in fact, I was just reflecting on this last night. The For most of my childhood, I was actually around black people. I was raised in a predominantly black community. Uh, my neighborhood only had a handful of non-black households and families. Um, and so, and a lot of my close friends in elementary school and, and early middle school were black. And so I remember it's funny, like I, I, I can clearly remember wishing I was black cause I could identify with all the kids on my blog. I mean, uh, other than myself and one other white kid, all the other neighborhood kids were black. Um, and I think that carried on and influenced kind of the way I, I, I thought about what was cool and, uh, into high school and, and wanting to identify with that community. But then I also ended up going to a all Asian middle school. It was a private school that was probably like 95% Asian and, and, and even then Chinese American. And I remember almost receiving like this reverse racism where because I was one of the like three or four non-Asian faces in my school, I was always the butt of jokes for being white. Uh, I was not a Christian, so I was saved into a Chinese American church, Chinese immigrant and Chinese American church. And uh, and even there, I was literally the only non-Chinese face, not non-Asian face, and I was always picked on for being white. Um, and so so then my identity shifted. I, I really wanted to be, look Asian. Uh, I remember like literally looking in the mirror and asking myself, why do I look white? Like I'm half Asian, why did this happen? And really hating that. And uh, all my life kind of feeling like I had to prove myself that I really am Asian, uh, even now making these caveats. Um, but I think, you know, f for myself, that also plays into how I've thought about race, especially as I've developed and matured more and, and gotten a, a handle on these issues that are so complex and trying to just really think through like what, what is race societally and historically and now biblically? Um, and how do I, as a biracial person that I, I've never had a racial home to go to, um, I've never had a group of people to identify myself with. I was always trying to identify with another community, whether it be the black neighborhood I grew up in or the Asian American community I was discipled up in. And uh, and funny enough, I, I never actually interacted with white majority people until I went to seminary. And there I was finally amongst people who were who were white, who looked like me, but I didn't act like them. And so that was a bit of a cultural confusion for me because people expected me to just be white, but I identified more with Asian. And so so actually most of my life, I didn't even know what white privilege was. Um, it wasn't until I left for college and started talking with people who assumed I was white, who didn't know me, uh, and were like putting these, you know, you have white privilege, you have white privilege. I was like, what is that? Because all my life being white was a detriment to me in the communities I was and grew up in. So so that's been an interesting um, interesting battle for me, even in even in coming to terms and and admitting that I have white privilege, that was actually kind of hard for me because being white was not advantageous in my communities growing up. Uh, but that's something I've had to realize in this whole race conversation that, you know, I have to acknowledge it that my experience 
outside of these racial communities I've been a part of is very different than even my wife when we travel together and we go to, you know, we went to Nashville together uh, a few years ago and, and she got a lot of stares and she was, she received racial slurs, whereas I could walk down uh, the streets of Music City, you know, unscathed, untouched by that. And so I, I have had to um, make amends to that, even as I'm working out my own racial identity inwardly. Well, thanks for sharing that, uh, brother. It's it's so interesting to hear from both of your perspectives and to hear, um, you know, how you have gotten the opportunity to interact um, with all sorts of different cultures, all mm. sorts of different ethnicities. Um, seems like at different times and in different places, maybe sometimes finding yourself being a member of the quote-unquote majority culture. Clark, just to mm-hmm. kind of hear you talking through um, your experience walking through Nashville, uh, but certainly in different times and in different seasons, feeling like you were um, not only in the minority culturally or ethnically, but also were detrimentally treated as a result of being in the minority. Um, I, you know, I'd love to hear... Uh, because, you know, from my perspective, being uh, a Caucasian male, um, from my perspective, I am viewing the current conversations in our country and in our communities uh, revolving race and ethnicity um, from sort of one perspective. And that's always coming from the majority position. Um, right. But each of you have a different perspective, and that is... Um, responding to this racial conversation from the position of a minority culture, but not always the minority culture um, that's directly in question. So right. I'd love, does, does that even make sense when I'm reflecting on there? Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say and what you think about um, how members of the Asian American community can think through being involved in these larger race-related discussions that are going on in our country. Uh, and specifically, what role, if any, uh, you feel like Asian Americans have to make in uh, the black-white relations conversations that are going on? Yeah, that's a such a good question. And especially for right now, you know, we started this quarantine with in response to COVID, realizing that there was a lot of underlying prejudices and racism still in America towards Asians. And uh, and we won't go as much in detail. There's um, an article that 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 we've been working on for Rooted that will go into detail on that. But but I think for a lot of Asians, even even amidst COVID, it was a reminder that we're only accepted if we fit into this model minority myth that America has placed upon us, and we've even bought into a lot of ways. Like if we just work hard, be successful, and mind our own business, then we can coexist here. But I think uh, a lot of Asians are also being reminded and, and, and are realizing that coexisting is not full acceptance. And, and there's been a lot of talk about this, you know, even when it came to like media. Um, and a lot of people have been talking in the Asian community about the whitewashing of Hollywood uh, and how a lot of, you know, um, big name Asian characters in, in literature uh, and in previous films were now being rewritten with white roles. And so I think that also plays into this Asian American narrative um, that we, you know, we're only allowed to be at a certain place, um, that we're only, we're only allowed to be at the table if we, you know, 
play in our pocket, stay in our lane, and don't really rock the boat too much. Um, and I think that's something that that's also played into the way that we engage now in this broader conversation with with race, with white black privilege, uh, white black racial relations. We kind of feel like we just have to stay in our lane, and if it doesn't pertain to us, we won't speak up. Um, even culturally, Asians tend to be more on the the passive side, and that's not because we don't have ideas. Like we think, we study hard. We're known for getting good grades and having successful jobs, but we tend to not speak our mind until we're called upon because of this Confucian upbringing of respecting your elders, waiting t- until you're spoken to, waiting till you're invited to speak, and any speaking out of turn comes off as e- being prideful or boasting about yourself. And I think we receive that a lot, um, even in the church, when we think about how we we approach leadership um, and and just speaking up and saying our mind. So I think that's really nuanced the way that Asians are engaging in this uh, this this racial conversation, especially for justice for Black people. Um, and so quite honestly, in, in the past for the years that Black Lives Matter has been a thing since 2013, like we've kind of just stayed on the sidelines because we didn't think we were invited to the table. It wasn't that we didn't have opinions or thoughts. Um, it wasn't that, you know, we were anti-black or we were still racist, although there is some nuance in that, uh, and we can unpack that a little bit, but I, I think it was largely because we just didn't know when it was our turn to speak. Um, and so I, I think, um, we're realizing that now we have to work through some of these historical and cultural things that we carry, as Kevin was even mentioning, to even come to the table with a a balanced view. Um, But I do think that being said, if we can work through some of those nuances, uh, which again, I hope we can get into in this conversation, I I think Asians have a really unique and special role to play. Um, I kind of see it as like, you know, let's say we have reconciliation between any two people and there's a deep relational divide, oftentimes you need a mediator, a third party person who's objective to come in and help bring reconciliation between the two parties. Uh, And because the racial tension historically in our country has largely been between blacks and whites, I actually think Asians may have a part to play in mediating this conversation. Um, I've been reflecting this for myself, even being a biracial, bicultural person. um, I think Bicultural mixed race people and people of interracial marriages have a a really unique role to play in this mediatorial role because they're always trying to straddle this divide between cultures internally and externally. Uh, but I think Asians broadly can also play some of that, um, but it's going to require us also laying down a lot of our own inherent prejudices and racism that we're still carrying and holding on to as um as Kevin was talking about. Kevin, I'd love to hear um you know, Clark, I want to come back and talk through some of those yeah. nuances that you were mentioning. But Kevin, I'd love to hear um, what thoughts that you've got on what role the Asian American community has to play in um, race discussions in general, but especially in this conversation that's currently happening between uh, blacks and whites. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with with Clark that I, I do think there's a place for us at the table. Um, and I do think that the mediator role is something that a lot of us have been talking about in terms of what does that look like, which is why, again, I think it was so important. Like, Because, again, the part of my brain that knows this needed to move forward and drag my heart along behind mm. it. And I really feel like what's happening now is my heart is being transformed by what I'm seeing, by what my head already knows. Um, and I think the Holy Spirit's helping me to see that if I'm going to have a place and I want a place in this conversation and I want to be helpful to everybody involved, um, 
I have to come at this from a place where I've reconciled with the things that have gone on inside of me in terms yeah. of my traumas, my prejudices, uh, my racial insensitivities, you know, um, and my honestly inferiority complex too, to some degree, right? Um, and I think a lot of people are wrestling with that. Uh, and one of the more frustrating things I've been seeing online is like this idea that like if you don't speak out, then you're for the other side or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of that largely comes from an, a misunderstanding of, I think, a, a lot of how Asian people process things, yeah. especially in the public square. Um, just because you're not saying, thing on, saying anything on social media doesn't mean you're not having these conversations right, right. or not thinking about these things. Um, and as Clark talked about before, like we need to get an A before we speak up, right? We need a PhD <laughs> before we're allowed to say anything anyway. So I do think there's a large number. I mean, like I said, um, I mentioned earlier that a lot of Asian American churches and organizations, like one of the first things that we did was we pulled together resources so that people can read and learn, get to know ministries that are already involved with this kind of work. Um, what are the things that we should be thinking through? Um, how can we have a gospel-centered perspective on all of this stuff? Um, that's actually my first instinct was how do I lead my um, college young adults uh, and youth ministries through these conversations um, by putting together resources that are going to be helpful for them so that when they are engaging either on a personal level or on social media, uh, they are better informed uh, and they do understand what the Bible says about all of these things. Yeah, and I think for with that, I mean, just to play off that too, like I, I think – I think a lot of people maybe think that Asian Americans don't have any thoughts about this because they've been silent, but it's really just because we don't, like I said, we don't want to speak out of turn. We didn't feel like it was our place. And, and I think sometimes when we have spoken up, we've almost like been rejected. Um, like I remember hearing a story about a Asian American reporter who was reporting on, um, you know, the Dallas shooting standoffs between police and black people um, back in 2014, I believe. And, uh, and black people looked at him and said, why are you here? This has nothing to do with you. This doesn't concern you. And so I think that's, that is the sentiment of a lot of Asian Americans. Like we're, we didn't know if we were invited, honestly. Um, and again, culturally, because of where we come from, we often need to be asked, uh, to feel like we have permission to speak. But I think what, what people will find is if, you know, white majority and black people are willing to, you know, invite Asians to the table and ask them what they think, they'll, they'll. I hope they'll realize there's a lot more thoughtfulness being put in because we, like you said, Kevin, we don't want to speak up before we feel like we have the right answer out of our timidity and fear, but also just wanting to be able to say the right things. Yeah, which is why I think it's so crucial for us to have the heart stuff worked out right, right. Because even if we're wrong about what we're saying, I really believe that when your heart is in the right place, and I don't just mean on a general level, but I really mean like you know that you are you've dealt with the racism that's inside of your own heart. Yes. It makes it so much easier to push through because then we're not just shamed for our misinformation. Because again, right. like who knows everything there is to know about every detail in history and every nuance of all of these kinds of things. Um, so that's why I think it's important for us to be able to be a part of this movement in ways that make sense, that we really have a deep-seated um, conviction that this is the right thing to do. Hmm. Thank you so much for those thoughts and, and that perspective. And as I'm listening to this, um, I can't help but to think of uh, the current, you know, Asian American middle schooler or Asian American mm -hmm. high schooler um, who uh, is being served by a pastor, a youth pastor, uh, a parent who is listening to this podcast. 
And, and so as we think through the couple of things that I've heard you mention uh, in, in a few different ways in this podcast, but one being some of the, um, just from an experience of having many adverse, uh, adverse interactions as a member of a minority culture, some of the um, racial strife, some of the recon- reconciliation work that may need to happen in the heart of an Asian American student, uh, and then also this cultural uh, paradigm of, um, I can't remember who said it, but needing to be invited to the table, needing to be invited to speak into the conversation before it's appropriate to do so. I'd love for y'all to speak to those different dynamics, maybe some of the um, some of the racial discord that may happen in the heart of an Asian American student, and then the cultural resistance to speaking up. How do you shepherd, how would you encourage um, those listening to this podcast to shepherd Asian American students into making helpful um, and and God glorifying contributions to this really important conversation. That is such a good question, and I think which really identifies where where most of our congregation members, our students in youth ministry, our parents, um, and even just Asian Americans as a whole are trying to grapple with the issues right now, because as Kevin mentions. We we historically have received a lot of racism, not just at the hands of the white majority, but but maybe even more so by black people. Um, unfortunately, I've heard a lot of stories come out during this awakening to black injustice where Asian people have been saying that they've seen the most violence racially against them by black people. And it's unfortunately perpetuated this narrative that we've bought into as a nation and now as Asian people that blacks are criminals and not to be trusted. And, um, you know, you mentioned the, the LA riots, Kevin, um, with Rodney King, the beating of Rodney King that set off these riots. What, what I actually didn't know, and I had to learn this was, um, uh, right. I forget if it was right before that or right after that, there was a killing of a young teenage African-American woman by a convenience store owner who was a Korean woman, Korean immigrant woman, uh, because she had experienced this very same thing. She had mm-hmm. experienced gang members in another one of their convenience stores looting it and stealing. And uh, and because of that, she had this prejudice that was built up. Well, when she had this interaction with this teenager, she was likely frustrated and sick of it. She thought the teenager was stealing something, but really she was just going to pay for it and was holding it in her backpack. And she ended up tragically shooting that teenager in the back of the head and killing her. And no justice was served. Um, and that's, I think that's something that, that we either we forget or maybe we didn't even know uh, in the Asian community that that's part of the reason why wow. Koreatown was targeted in the wow. riots. Um, but also because all the, and this is what I mean by the nuances, all, all the history there where, uh, you know, where, where black people largely were in South LA, South Central, uh, and that was where, that was their hood, their territory. And Korean people started moving into there because of cheaper land for their businesses. Uh, more Korean immigrants were coming in at the time, and so they needed to spread out beyond Koreatown. So they were they were coming in with still poor, but more money than the blacks. And so black communities took that as a threat when Korean immigrants were coming in and taking some of the uh, the buildings and the housing and the uh, businesses. 
And so it created this tension, this breeding ground um, where the riots happen. So I don't think anything ever happens in a vacuum. We have to remember that. Like even even we've been talking this whole current uh, this this current circumstance of the protests around George Floyd. Well, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in in literally this vacuum where there was nothing else going on because of the pandemic of COVID. So all eyes, all our attention was on social media. All eyes were on the news. Uh, and it just created this perfect breeding ground for tensions to boil over and move into action. And so, um, but going back to those LA riots, I think that's something that most Asians have experienced. And so, uh, even like you were mentioning, Kevin, like uh, we, I've interacted at my church with with so many people that um, that don't really understand what systemic racism is, and because they've had their own um, racist experience, both from white and black people. In their minds, they're kind of thinking, well, we've overcome. Uh, we've kind of just had to deal with it because we're Asian. We just take it, stay in our place, work hard, and deal with it. Why can't black people do the same thing? Without realizing the nuances that you know, black people have been here for 400 plus years against their will. They were brought here in oppression, whereas a lot of immigrants came here for opportunity. Uh, and even though the, the, uh, the barriers to opportunity were great for Asians greater than whites, well, blacks were, they didn't come here for opportunity. They came here because of oppression and they've been kept under that systemically. And so while we can identify with the black narrative in some way, I, I think it's a fraction of what they feel. And so what I've been even thinking about for myself as I was becoming more aware of these issues was how can the, the small instances of racism I've experienced and some of the bitterness I may hold, um, how can I use that to not justify my abs- absolving of responsibility from this conversation? But rather to ask myself, if I went through that at a fraction of what my black brothers and sisters have gone through and it made me that upset, I can't imagine what they're going through. And and when you put that into perspective, all of the riots, the looting, the protests, the violence, as, as much as we can't condone it, all of that makes more sense. And not to say it's justifiable, but but you know, I, I get why they're angry. I get why they're looting. I get why they're finally trying to rise up against a system that's held them down. Um, and 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 that's that's the whole point of empathy and putting ourselves in their shoes and asking, would we do any better? Like if the Asian community was under that systemic oppression for as long, for as much as we're compliant and submissive people by nature and our culture as it says so, would we be any better than the black community? And I, I think the answer would probably be no. Like we would be as in, as outraged and uh, and upset at the situation, and maybe even respond just as just as 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 anger uh, as with as much anger, but maybe not as much violence. But but who knows? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I'm so glad you pointed all of that out because this stuff doesn't ex- exist in a vacuum. Um, and that's why I think the cycle has to be stopped in yeah. every individual person's heart again, you know? Yes. Um, but but to that point, when I was talking to my students about this, um, and again, especially for the ones who weren't fully yet convinced um, that systemic racism is an issue, um, one of the things that I talked to them about was, you know, how difficult was it for you to do schoolwork uh, in pandemic, you know, mm. like, and they, they, they were not anymore, but they were using words like, yeah, this feels oppressive. Like it feels like <laughs> coronavirus has <laughs> locked me up inside my house wow. and I'm not free to, and so schoolwork is harder. Like in a way it shouldn't be right. Cause online classes, right. You can rewind your college professors lectures. Like you could do all that stuff. There's some advantages there, but it just felt so much harder to do schoolwork. Yeah. And I was like, now I want you to take that and multiply that by years and kind of all throughout. Mm the entire education system and ask me like is is it a, is it any wonder that uh you know black and latino students don't do as well as asian and white yeah, students that's so know? good 
Like there's stuff there that you've experienced in the last couple of months that should actually be helping you to understand what's happening. Um, and so those are some of the illustrations and examples I've used with, with our students. And uh, it's been eye-opening. And I think a lot of them, they're beginning to really internally process this. And again, like I just keep wanting to praise God for this gigantic pause button yeah. that he's put on the world because I think it's all forced us to really confront all sorts of sins in our life, you know. Um, but but this one in particular, I mean, yes. it's, been, it's been huge again for me personally. Um, but I do see it transforming and really getting um, the lives of our students to really be thinking about this on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And again, not just taking in also like just a lot of the rhetoric of the world that's around them. Because we know the younger generations, they're more diverse. They're more apt to go along with what's going on with regards to the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, but to really internalize it, that takes, I think, uh, a different kind of, of mm. work. And so um, that's what I've been focusing on. And not just like retweeting or reposting whatever they see, just because it's the hip thing, the hype thing to do right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Wow, that's such a helpful, um, so, I mean, just for my thinking, and so I'm sure for those who are listening, really helpful as well to think through not minimizing, um, you know, I, I'd want to say our personal experiences, but my experience, to be honest, uh, has been very different than each of yours. So I'll say your experiences and the experience of others like you, um, and not to minimize the damage and the destruction there, but rather to use that as a launching pad for empathy. Um, mm-hmm. As Kevin, I think you said, multiply that over years, over yeah. decades, um, over entire communities, um, and, and you can understand a little bit what's happening in the riots and the protests. Really helpful. Um, Kevin, I wanted to follow back as well, uh, just because even you were talking through retweeting and posting to Facebook and and um, sort of counteracting this narrative that, um, you know, the hip phrase on social media is that silence is violence. Um, what do you say to an Asian American uh teenager, Asian American student, Asian American pastor, youth pastor, who wants to respond and yet has this cultural inertia that says, this is not my place unless I'm invited to the table. How, how, how would you inform your response with those two dynamics in play? Well, first I would say sometimes silence is not violence. Sometimes silence is wisdom. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's one. And then, uh, num- that's good. And then I think number two is, again, inviting students. Even if you're in a majority, like my context is majority immigrant church, right? So pretty much 95% of the people at my church are Korean. And so even in our group, though, sometimes this doesn't feel like a safe conversation, right? Like how do we have a conversation about race, even in a mono-ethnic context. That doesn't feel safe. You still have to create that, right? Like, I don't want to assume that in my group, just because, you know, most of us are Koreans, we can talk about this comfortably. That's not true. We have to actually do the work to open up the conversation, to talk about these things, to create um, a, a place that's open, honest, and vulnerable, and allows people to speak freely uh, without condemnation. I think that's really, really important, really, really key. Um, and I think once you're able to sort of do that, you can begin to help the students process through what's actually um, what they should be doing with their voice online. Um, what should they be promoting? What should they be thinking through? What should they be talking about? And activism is not just, you know, putting something on your story yeah. um, that everyone else is putting on there. I think it can be, but I think you do have to be wise about, again, the the things that you're posting and the things that you're actually saying. So this is why, again... 
Bible teachers need to be teaching through uh, what the Bible says about justice and reconciliation. Um, and again, I think this is such a huge opportunity for showing the world that the gospel has resources to handle this mm-hmm. and deal with this. Yeah. Right? Like, we don't want to forsake that. We want to be even more open about that, and we want to be more um, bold about gospel proclamations in, in light of all of this because they're connected, right? This is a part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, to add on to that, I think, I do think this is an opportunity where we as leaders in Asian American communities can can maybe take those first steps to speak up and show people it's okay to speak out. Um, I, I do think we we are as Asians trying to be more, you know, cautious in what we say or or waiting to be invited. There there is again, like you said, some wisdom to that. I mean, even James says be be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Like if everyone on social media adopted that we would be able to actually have a conversation around this. Amen. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I also remind people, well, right after that, James also says faith without deeds is dead. Yeah. And Amen. by the way, religion that is pure and undefiled is one that visits orphan and widows in their affliction. Mm, that's good. Uh, and so there's both faith with deed and activism uh, as we're also slow to speak and slow to anger. And so I think there's a way to do both. Like we don't, we don't have to just jump into the outrage hype. But at the same time, this is an opportunity for community leaders to start showing that we have been silent. We have been silent for a long time, um, and maybe a lot of that is due to the fact that we just haven't grappled with these issues enough. So we do need to learn more, and maybe that's how we can start speaking out: is just pushing our our Asian American communities and people and believers, especially to to really deal with this now because it's at the forefront. Like we can't just silently sit back in passivity or or be quiet any longer. Um, if we need more time to grapple with the issues, that's fine, but eventually we're going to have to do something about it. Um, and you know, something I always told my, tell my students, my youth students and college students now is, you know, it's really easy to speak your politics. It's much harder to live them. It's easy to post on social media, what you believe about your politics, but show me how you're backing that up with your life as you're living in the world. Mm -hmm. And so if people are posting all these things about black lives matter, like that's great, you know, justice for George Floyd and all these people. Now, what are you going to do with that? When all this virtual hype dies down, are you actually going to live out what you say you believe? Are you going to go and befriend black people? Because Asians, we we tend to stick to our own, right? We stick in our own cultural bubbles. Um, and like many ethnic minorities, we, we, we are afraid to cross those lines. We feel safe in our cultural communities. And it's a safety net for us. But especially as believers, if we really believe that there's both equality and justice for all men... Um, then, then we need to start moving towards these people who are not like us, not just having empathy from the sidelines, but having love front and center as we talk with them across the table. Gentlemen, this has been such a helpful conversation for me. Um, again, largely as someone being a, a Caucasian male, largely someone who feels like I am, uh, I'm outside of this conversation, but I'm learning so much and I'm growing so much, even though um, some would say just by the title of this podcast that this is a peripheral issue to me, but this is central. Yeah. This is helpful. Your wisdom encourages me. Um, the, you know, the last question that I've got really is the question, the question behind the question. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember who said it, but, um, you know, there's wisdom obviously sometimes and not feeling like we've got to address every single cultural concern and every different, uh, thing that happens on social media or on the blogosphere, 
And at the same time, the opposite error, which I encounter, especially in my context, is uh, that um, it's not the church's job to speak to these social issues. Christians have no role to play in this conversation. Um, Just just open the Bible. And and you you even hinted at this, that, yeah, man, if we open the Bible, we see such central teaching and central truth that informs how we respond to these issues. But you know, I guess the question that I've got um, is this, and, and it relates to one of our uh, five pillars at Rooted, which is gospel centrality. And that is, why are these questions involving race and racial, racial justice, um, why are they more than just good questions? Why are they gospel questions? I, I'd love to hear each of your perspectives yeah. on that first. So, Clark, I think I asked Kevin point blank last time. I'll uh, I'll ask you point blank first this time. Right. Why is, why are these gospel <laughs> questions for us? Yeah, uh, that is like you said. That is the most important question. Um, gosh, there's there's so much to be said about this. I I always think initially back to actually Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement in the '60s, when he's writing his letter from a Birmingham jail. And he's addressing his fellow white pastors, whom he was writing to, to join in the activism with him and the other black churches. And the response he always got was, you know, brother, just wait. God is your avenger. He will carry out his justice towards the oppressors. Just wait on God. Um, Or, you know, just stay on message. Stay on message with the gospel. Just preach the spiritual reality and stop stirring up all this violence. Like you're bringing it upon yourself is in a sense what they were saying. Um, You're there in jail because of your own fault. And, And I love how Martin Luther King responds because he says that, that if I, if I, and he, I think he quotes James in here, if my brother's in need and I say, just go and be happy and blessed, how am I loving him? And he says that the Negro community, in his words, are in this point of need and we need you to stand up and fight for us. How can you just say, go and be filled and happy, but leaving us poor and hungry to die on the side of the road? Um, and he very much taps into this idea where that I think we've, we've unfortunately bought into in Western Christianity that the gospel is primarily a spiritual reality. And, and a lot of this has come from, uh, I think, our reaction against liberation theology in South America in the early 1900s, uh, against the social gospel more recently, where, where we're honestly, we're, we keep trying to make distinctions that, well, we're for the gospel that preach, uh, that proclaims Jesus' salvation from sins for sinners uh, and the resurrection of hope that we have which is a great spiritual reality. But we also forget that when Jesus came, he came bringing the kingdom with his inauguration of him as the king uh, coming to earth. Uh, that's what it means when, when Mark says the kingdom is, is near, it's imminent. It doesn't mean it's coming soon. Rather, it means it's drawn near in the person of Jesus. The king itself is here, so the kingdom is coming. And that's where we get this whole idea of the already but not yet of the kingdom. And so I think if we think about that, um, as believers especially, we have not just a, a a responsibility, but we have this joyous part to play in not just pointing people verbally to the future kingdom, the spiritual reality we're all hoping for, but presently displaying God's kingdom and his kingdom ethics right now as his kingdom is breaking into this present world of sin through the church, through believers, and I believe also through our activism, uh, through showing that we really... We have this hope because it's not just a future one. It's a present one we can hold on to so we can fight for justice. We can fight for equality of life. Um, that's why even we, 
we talk about being pro-life. Uh, you know, largely being Christian politically has often meant you stand for two things. You're against gay marriage and you're, you're against abortion. You're pro-life. And, and I've even wondered, I've posed this question to some more conservative leaders. If everything happening right now, if, if, if it were all the same circumstances, but instead of Black Lives Matter, what if it... What if all of a sudden our nation woke up to the injustice of abortion and we said unborn babies matter? Would we be as hesitant to join in in fighting for unborn babies? And I think the answer would be no. We would jump at it, even if it's partnering with the world because we see it's a just cause. Well, now what this is showing us is maybe our gospel is actually too narrow to help us care and think biblically about social issues because we've just been afraid to go there because of historically what's happened. But I would also argue that if we don't go far enough in seeing how the gospel really relates to and cares about our present physical needs, then we don't have a complete gospel. We're missing a whole side of the gospel uh, that, that is about not just our individual salvation, but God's communal kingdom ethics. And, and even we say this, the community of the saints. One display that a, someone believes in the gospel is by their involvement in the local church community. That's a physical reality, a spiritual reality made physical. And I think we can say the same thing as we are existing in this world. We're not just pointing towards a future new heavens and new earth, but we're seeing the new heavens and new earth break in, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven right now. And so that's really what I would say to this is we have to care about issues like this. And, and we're being awakened, uh, hopefully, finally, as a church to realize maybe our gospel is too small. Uh, and for as, as great as and central as individual salvation is in our gospel, it's not the complete biblical picture and narrative. Um, and, and just one final word I'd say is that I've been really convicted about this uh, as I've been thinking and reflecting you know, I mentioned James and he famous verse, he says, you know, religion that is pure and undefiled is this, visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. And that wasn't James just saying orphans and widows are our central focus of the church for all time and all history. They were the most voiceless and vulnerable in their society at the time. And now we have to ask in every point in history that the church is at, who are the voiceless and vulnerable? Who are the weak and the ones taken advantage of that the church can stand for? And I would argue that the two groups that are the most voiceless and vulnerable in our society in America today are, are the unborn and are blacks, black communities. And, and in fact, most of the unborn aborted babies are from black communities. So for us to really live out our faith and works indeed, this has to be a central focus for us now. And, and we've just let racism go unchecked for far too long. Um, again, not just from white majority churches, but even Asian churches, we've allowed, we've allowed as, as Kevin was alluding to, too, our own prejudices to go unchecked in our hearts. And so for Asian, even Asian churches and white churches and all, all people of color alike, we have to ask this question, where are we still, as James even continues in the very next verse, showing partiality? Um, where are we showing partiality racially to people in our churches uh, or against people outside of our churches and where do, where do we really need the gospel and the spirit to do its heart work in us to open our eyes to these various facets of the gospel that we've unfortunately uh, ignored out of our own comfort or fear of going there because of what that would mean in disrupting our patterns and our comforts. Uh, but I think if we go there, we will experience the gospel in a way that, um, that maybe we haven't yet, honestly, in the church in the West because we are so comfortable and safe with it. Uh, but also we'll experience so much more of what Jesus meant when he said that he came uh, not to not to save the righteous, but to seek out the lost. Uh, and identifying even in that Jesus came to us, uh, the weakest, 
the most vulnerable, the voiceless, because we needed a savior outside of ourselves. And in so doing, we can move towards the world in a way that Christ moved towards us. Wow. See, this is what I mean by I learned so much from you, dude. (laughs) (laughs) That was a systematic explanation of how the gospel speaks to this issue. Like, I just don't know that I have much to add. Um, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just one thing, though. No, seriously. Um, yes and amen to everything that you said. Um, and just like you've been convicted, I've been totally convicted of the things that haven't been happening in my own heart. And I was just like, how do I lead in this? How do I lead my people in this? And then um, I was coming across, um, I think it was Don Carson and Tim Keller. They've been saying often, I think maybe every year or so on TGC that like, if we're going to pray for revival, it has to come with repentance. Right. Repentance right. has to be at the center of revival. And I'm like, you know, like as Koreans, Koreans love revivals. We love hosting revivals every four <laughs> yes. months. We're scheduling a revival Schedule. with God. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's amazing is Koreans sound exactly like Appalachians Southern in ba- North Georgia. So <laughs> I was going to say Southern Baptist, right? Yeah. We are, we're, we're all, yeah, we're all in this together. It sounds like. We're trying to schedule these revivals, but honestly, like if every Christian in America were to get down on their knees right now and repent of yeah any racism in their heart, oh. would that not bring revival? Amen. Oh. Right? Amen. And so that's just what I'm like, okay, I'm going to publicly lead mm. in this. And so me personally, I don't really, I don't like posting personal stuff on Facebook. I have a tendency to like try to post other people's stuff. It's <laughs> yeah. the Asian part of me that yes. doesn't want to do anything. But I was like, I have to lead in this. And I want my people to see that if I'm going to say things from myself, I want it to be a uh, a prayer of repentance for the ugliness that I've seen inside of me. Because I am so committed to revival, I'm so committed to the kingdom of God, that I'm willing to say, I'm an ugly sinner, and this is the ways that I've been thinking about this previously. And I'm no longer going to think that way, right? Repentance is a turning back. And part of turning back is is publicly confessing, like, this is who I was. And because of the cross of Christ, I now have the freedom and the ability to walk away from this and to move in a direction that is far more kingdom-minded, as Clark, you were just mm. saying. Amen. And this is such a central gospel issue. Mm. In way. Men, I am a better Christian uh, because of your voice in my life. I am a better pastor because of your voice in my life. Um, I have been convicted uh, through this conversation to repentance and uh, I feel like as the Lord does his grace in me, you have laid plenty of firewood uh, around my heart, so to speak, that when the Holy Spirit sparks um, mm-hmm. and we've got plenty to work with, I thank you for that. Uh, and, and I trust that many of our listeners to this podcast feel the exact same way. Clark, Kevin, your voices are wise. They are sensible. Uh, they're much needed in this time in which we live in, not only for members of the Asian American community, uh, but like I said, I have benefited tremendously from this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much, Davis. Good to be with Thanks, you guys. Yeah, uh, Y'all, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Rooted Youth Ministry podcast. Uh, for more resources like these, Uh, designed to faithfully equip and encourage you to disciple students towards lifelong faith in Jesus Christ, I hope that you'll find Rooted on the internet at www.rootedministry.com. On behalf of all of us here at Rooted, uh, I am Davis Lacey, and this has been an episode of the Rooted Youth Ministry Podcast.